Now for today, we are in the third week of our fall sermon series, and so we are going to now have our friend read the next piece for this part. Ever since Adam and Eve first allowed sin into the world, with their mistrust of God's love, God has been working to ultimately restore humanity. Through faithful followers like Noah, Abraham and Sarah, and Moses, he created a nation of people, the Israelites, whom he would use to bless and redeem the entire creation. Now Moses passes the leadership baton to Joshua, just as the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. God assures Joshua that he will be with them as they enter Canaan, and Joshua rallies the people to cross the river. War almost immediately ensues, and before all is said and done, 31 kings and their peoples are defeated, and the Israelites claim the land. Nearing his death, Joshua reminds the people that they are to be a holy people who serve the Lord only, a nation of priests to show the image of God and his kingdom to the world. They have made a covenant with him, and there are consequences should they turn away from that covenant. Unfortunately, it doesn't take long for things to unravel. A generation into their new lives, and Canaan finds idolatry spreading across the land as the Israelites succumb to the temptations offered by their neighbors' religions. They have once again defaulted on their end of the covenant, and so begins a vicious cycle. The Israelites fall away from God. He lifts his hand of protection, and the enemies attack They cry out to God. He raises up a leader to get them back on track. And they eventually fall away again, and so on. Yet God continues to work among them. He blesses a young foreigner named Ruth. And as she gives up her own family and gods to lovingly care for her widowed Israelite mother-in-law and serve the God of Israel, Ruth eventually marries an Israelite named Boaz. And they have a son named Obed. Obed, in turn, grows up to be the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of a shepherd boy named David. All the while, the nation is growing restless, and the people insist that they need a king to rule over them so that they can be like other nations, even though the covenant they made with God calls them to be the opposite. God warns that trusting in a human king instead of him will end badly, but they continue to protest. So God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint a young man named Saul as king of Israel. The handsome young man proves to be a competent military leader, exactly what the people need and want. Yet, he does not follow God just as he should. Samuel rebukes Saul several times for his faithlessness, but Saul continues down an ever-darkening path. Therefore, God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse, grandson of Ruth and Boaz, in search of Saul's replacement. Jesse's older son, like Saul, are handsome and strong, but God reminds Samuel he does not look at the outward appearance of a person, but in the heart. And Jesse's youngest son, David, is eventually called in. Here, God tells Samuel, is a young man who truly loves the Lord with all his heart. Samuel anoints David 
But he cannot be crowned king just yet, for Saul still sits on the throne. But Saul's reign has already begun to decay, and his mental state growing ever more paranoid and desperate. And when young David defeats a giant Philistine warrior and leads the Israelites in one successful battle after another, jealousy and fear consume Saul, and he tries to kill David. A cat-and-mouse game ensues with Saul pursuing David through the countryside. And it isn't until David proves he means Saul no harm, not once but twice, that Saul finally relents. Not long afterwards, Saul finds himself in a battle once more against the Philistines. And when he receives word that the three of his sons have died in battle, Saul commits suicide. At last, David is crowned king. God promises to bless David's family and always be with them. And for a while, everything is great. But then David makes a terrible choice and does something uncharacteristically selfish. He commits adultery and has a woman's husband killed when he finds out that she has become pregnant. Nathan the prophet comes to him and reveals the sinful nature of his choices. And David, unlike Saul, repents wholeheartedly. Still, the consequences of his choices must play out, and the remainder of David's rule is filled with violence and heartbreak. On his deathbed, David hands the throne over to his son, Solomon. Solomon asks for wisdom from God in order to rule the Israel, Israelites rightly, which God gladly gives him. He builds a magnificent temple to the Lord and writes several books of wise words and proverbs. Yet for all this wisdom, Solomon eventually falls into idolatry. Following Solomon's death, a civil war splits the country of Israel and Judah. Things only worsen as generations of bad kings rule in both nations, and the people fall further away from God. God calls upon prophets to warn the kings and the people of the consequences of their choices, but their words go mostly unheeded. Finally, God lifts his hand of protection, and the enemies invade. The descendants of Abraham are taken captive and exiled, and when some do eventually return, what they found was it was difficult to rebuild what was lost. Still, The prophecies of old foretell of a coming of a one who will save them, a savior from the house of David coming to redeem God's people. And so they wait with growing anticipation. Good morning, Woodland Hills folks, kingdom people, hello, Pod, Rishner congregation. That's been uh, so awesome worshiping with you this morning, just the presence of God and the joy in this place. It's been wonderful. We are covering, obviously, as you got from the narrative, a lot of scripture here this morning. We're covering a period of time that is nothing less than 1,500 years. Uh, In fact, you've probably never heard so much Bible history in such a short period of time as you just heard the last five minutes. That was very succinct. Uh, Teresa, who who writes these, has the gift of succinctness. No doubt she inherited that from me, uh, because I'm very, very... Okay, she didn't, but... So I'm going to try to cover this period of time. I thought the best way to do this is to pick out one theme and trace it through this period. 
the theme that I think is, is most important to us. That's kind of what we're doing in this series. We give the narrative, which is just the big picture, just so we can kind of see the whole forest. And then we pick out a couple of trees uh, to look at. And, um, and so I'm going to pick one theme. Uh, it relates to the artwork that you see here this morning. You may have noticed that we have some interesting decorations going on here. Uh, all these colored ribbons throughout the auditorium. And then they're hanging from the cross. Uh, this was done by Clark and Debbie Donnelly. I think it's just brilliant, actually. Uh, it's their, it, it is, it's brilliant. And we explained that a little bit in the bulletin, but they're, they're trying to capture all these different motifs you find in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, um, where... Uh, there's starts and stops. God starts something, it's, it grows, and then, then the people prove unfaithful, it comes to an end. Uh, there's different attempts to get rightly related with God. They go for a while, but then they, they fall short. And there's all these different strands. We'll be looking at a couple of these strands. There's one theme, but there's various strands that weave in and out of it. And, and uh, they all find their fulfillment in the cross. The cross. That's why we have the ribbons hanging from the cross. Um, and it's only when you look at... And read the Old Covenant through the lens of the cross. We know who God really is and what His plan really is because of, 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 its, of His revelation in Christ, especially on the cross. And as we look at the Old Covenant through that lens, we can now see how these themes relate. How they're laying the groundwork for this. How they in various ways point to this. And they do it in different ways. Some prophesy of it. Some anticipate it. Some are there uh, to contrast with what we learn about God in Christ. But they all end up having their coherence on the cross. Starts and stops all over the place, but here's where they all come together. The theme that we're going to be looking at addresses this question. and It's a very important question. It's one that, uh, if you've been a Bible reader for any length of time, you've no doubt wrestled with it. It's one that's hotly debated right now. And it's the, the issue of why is it that, at least in certain respects, fundamental respects, the Old Covenant seems so different, radically different, than the New Covenant. And sometimes even the portrait of God that you get in the Old Covenant seems very different than the portrait that we're given in Christ, uh, and especially on Calvary. It's a topic that I've been working on for the last six years, uh, and with this book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And in the Old Covenant, there's a reliance on the law, for example. But in the New Covenant, the law is written on our heart, and there's a reliance on God's empowering grace. In the Old Covenant, it's, it's based on nationalism, one particular nation in relationship to all the other nations. But in the New Covenant, the kingdom, it, it knows no national borders. In the Old Covenant, there's a reliance on earthly kings. But in the New Covenant, we have only one king, and he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps most difficult is that in the Old Covenant, there's a whole lot of violence. A whole lot of violence. In the New Covenant, right, the center of everything is this call uh, to, to live nonviolently and to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. How do we put this together in a coherent whole? Uh, how do we make sense out of this? And this isn't just a theoretical, theological question. This has huge, as I hope we'll see here towards the end of the message, huge practical implications for us. This is, I think, a message, one of the most important messages for the church in America especially to hear. Uh, it's, it's a wake-up call. It's something that God's put on my heart. Uh, and it's been burning for, for the last seven years. Um, and so if I get a little bit passionate this morning, uh, please understand. It's because it's been burning in me for quite some time. Uh, now, as if we didn't have enough of, of a period of time to cover already, I want to even broaden it further. Because I want to start by going back to the beginning once again, to Genesis 1. And I want us to know two facts 
about God's original plan for human beings. The first is that, as I said two weeks ago, we're made in the image of God, which means, among other things, that we're, we're, we're made in and we're empowered to reflect his character, his loving, benevolent character, by the way that we uh, rule the earth and the animal kingdom. That's our, our, our first job description. We're to be to the earth and the animal kingdom in a small way what God is over the whole cosmos. And in that way, we bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we're to rule the earth and the animal kingdom, but we weren't to rule one another. That's not part of God's original program. Uh, there'd be room for people to lead with their gifts. Uh, in whatever area you're gifted at, people would follow. But there, wouldn't, there wasn't to be any tyranny of one person or one group of people over others. You rule the earth and the animal kingdom and not over one another. The second thing I want us to notice is that in God's original design for human beings, and really for all creation, it was to be completely free of violence. Because God at his heart of hearts is a self-sacrificial God, not a violent God. And so, for example, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, that the Lord says, I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life, I've given the plant for. In other words, in God's ideal for creation, there wasn't to be any violence, not even in the animal kingdom. It's only after the fall, after the human rebellion, that we find humans beginning to lord over one another. And it's only after the fall that we find violence being introduced into human society and into creation. Uh, that immediately raises all sorts of questions about how do you integrate that Genesis account with the fact that we've had, according to most scientists, millions of years of, of animals eating animals and violence in the animal kingdom leading up to human beings. And I can't, it's a good question. I can't explore it now. I've written on that. I have an essay in a book called uh, Creation Made Free. Uh, just for right now, trust me that there's a way of dealing with it, but I can't get into it now. I gotta stay on task. You got a lot of ground to cover here. But, uh, I just want us to see that, that, that lording over one another and using coercive force over one another was not part of God's original program. That all happens as a result of the fall. Not only that, but if now you fast forward, uh, a, a couple of centuries, you come to this thing called the Tower of Babel. And here humanity was united, but we were united around an idolatrous quest. Something about building this tower up to the sky, I don't know what they were thinking, but it was dumb. But, but to prevent that, God deemed it would be the lesser of two evils to have a divided humanity than to have a united humanity around idolatry. And so the, here's where he gave the confusion of tongues, that's why it's called Babel. And it was at this point that, according to the biblical narrative, people are divided into uh, different geographical locations. They begin to take on different uh, phenotypes, different appearances, um, and different cultures. Here is the origin of the different nations. Here's the origin of the different people groups. Um, and so note this, that not only is any kind of ruling over one another a sign of rebellion, and not only is violence a sign of our fall, the human rebellion, but the very fact that there are nations, different nations, is a result, it's a sign of our rebellion. If there was no fall, there wouldn't be different nations, there wouldn't be human beings ruling over one another, and there wouldn't be any sword-wielding. All of that, the very existence of nations competing with nations, using the sword to coercively govern their own people, using the sword to further their self-interest and protect themselves from other nations in this fallen world, the very existence of these things, of nations, of governments, and of militaries, is a sign, a reminder, evidence of our rebellion. Now, to redeem humanity, God had to stoop 
as it were, to work in that structure. God always meets people where they're at. And so he's going to temporarily step down, as it were, to accommodate earthly rulers and governments and nations and violence. He's going to step down and work within that structure of earthly rule and governments and nations and violence in order to move his program forward. But his goal, I want us to know, his goal in doing that is to eventually free us from the need to be relying on those things. Because those things are all a sign of rebellion. So God stoops to enter into that. So he calls up one nation. Now he's going to play the nationalistic game. He calls it, raises up one nation, the Israelites. And his, his ideal here was to use Israel as a sort of mustard seed. He always works with a mustard seed principle, going from the small out to the big. So he's going to use one nation and have them model as much as possible his original ideal for, for human beings to the other nations. They're to be a nation of, of priests, mediating God's truth to the other nations. And so Israel originally has no king. They model the original plan to, for human beings to have God alone as king, not to be lording over one another. And originally, they're, uh, they were to have no, no sword wielding. They were to have no violence. And so you read over and over and over again, in various ways, the Lord's saying things like this. Trust me, and I'll protect you. This is the covenant here. Trust me, and I'll protect you. Uh, and you won't have to fight at all. I'll find a way of protecting you, and there won't be any bloodshed. Even going into the promised land, which is the bloodiest episode in the Old Testament, the conquest of the promised land, I can show you six verses that in different ways express God's hope to have that happen without any violence. At one point he says, I'll, I'll use pestilence, insects, hornets. I'll make it miserable for them, and they'll just relocate. Another time he says, I'll, I'll make the land unfruitful. Not all at once, so, so they don't just vacate the property, but, but gradually. So they'll gradually re, uh, move out, and you can gradually move in. Now, obviously, that didn't happen because, you see, that was all predicated on them trusting uh, the Lord to, to be their fortress, and that they found impossible to do. And we can't be too harsh on them for this because all the other people groups have swords and are, are vicious, and it's hard just to trust in God's protection when you don't have a sword. So they inevitably want to pick up the sword. They fall into that ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern mindset where to move into a land means you've got to kill everybody. And God continues to work with them. He, he, he's, the, he, he's, he's faithful to the covenant. He works with them despite the fact that they don't trust him. Uh, to do things nonviolently, and that tarnishes his appearance, it tarnishes how he looks, uh, but God's always willing to do that. In fact, that's what he does on the cross. Out of solidarity with human beings, he takes upon himself our sin and takes upon himself an appearance that reflects that sin. So also, in staying faithful to these people who are prone towards violence, he takes on the appearance of a, of a violent God. But we've got to know that that wasn't his ideal. Uh, he wanted to do it nonviolently. So they couldn't trust him, uh, to uh, protect them, they had to pick up the sword. And there came a time, in fact, where they couldn't even trust him to be king anymore. Um, we find that uh, around the time of uh, Samuel, the people are restless. Samuel's getting old. And, and as long as he was vibrant and alive, they, they were able to trust God. He was just sort of a, a reminder of that. But now that he's getting old, the people demand a king. It says this in 1 Samuel. They said to him, you are old and your sons don't follow your way, so they're not going to carry on your legacy. So now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Uh, they, you read this whole chapter. They, they want a military. They want to find security in a leader kind of a king. This was not God's ideal. 
God ends up acquiescing to this. He says, okay, fine. And so he tells Samuel this. Uh, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected. Don't take this personal, personal uh, Samuel. Uh, But they have rejected me as their king. They've rejected me. To place our trust in a human king is to reject God as king. Because the only reason we have earthly kings, and the only reason we have different nations ruled by earthly kings, and the only reason we have violence to rule those nations and to uh, for nations to war with each other, the only reason we have any of that is because of the fall. And now Israel wants to be just like the other nations. They have that because they've rejected God, and now Israel wants to be just like them. And so they put their trust in an earthly king. The Lord says it's not going to go well. It's going to go very, very bad. The people say, we want it anyways. So God gives it to them. And now they're just like the other nations, trusting in an earthly king. Uh, they, the people choose Saul. They, Saul rises up. And Saul is the kind, of, the kind of person that would always run for office. He, he looks like the office-running type. He's, he's, he's Mr. Slick. You know, he's strong. He's handsome. He's charismatic. He's taller than everybody else. You know, this is the kind of guys that they usually get elected. So uh, they, they choose Saul. And, and, and he's got some competency in, in, in uh, some areas. But in the end, he turns out to be a terrible king. And so God ends up, he says, I regret making him king. And he ends up removing him from office. And so then in place of him, now God doesn't leave it up to the people to choose. He chooses David. Humans tend to choose Mr. Slick. God chooses David. And David ain't no Mr. Slick. Uh, David... Well, it just doesn't seem like he would be king material. He's the youngest of all the sons of Jesse. And in the ancient world, you always go with the oldest. If you can't get the oldest, you go to the next oldest. David is at the bottom of the pecking order by normal ancient Near Eastern uh, standards. Uh, and for his resume, his great resume to be a king, if he's applying for this position, he could put down, I'm a shepherd boy. Great qualifications for a king here. Yeah, I tend sheep. Not, not too much difference there, I guess. I could see how that would work. Worst of all, the guy plays the harp. I mean, come on. What kind of a king plays a harp? <laughs> oh, you're supposed to do something rugged. And, and he's handsome, it says, but he's handsome, but, but he's small in stature. So he's a puny shepherd boy who plays the harp. What kind of a king is this? But you see, when God chooses leaders, he doesn't go by the standards of the world. The, the one thing that David had that God looks for is, Scripture says he, he was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. In his heart of hearts, he wanted to be faithful for God. That's what Saul didn't have. That's what David does have. And, and that's why usually in Scripture when God uh, chooses leaders, they don't fit very well the standards that, that most people use when they're looking at leaders. or They're not usually charismatic or smooth talkers or anything like that. They've got their, their faults and their weaknesses and their warts. Uh, but what they have in common is that they, in their heart of hearts, they want to be faithful to God. So David was a man after God's own heart. Perfectly? No. Far from that. In fact, David had some major screw-ups. Uh, he, as the narrative recounted, uh, this mighty king turns into a peeping Tom one time on the top of his palace. He's looking around and spots this lady taking a shower, Bathsheba, and even though he's got more wives than any man could possibly handle, he wants to have her. Great. I think she's already married. And so now this peeping Tom turns into an adulterer, and then she gets pregnant, so then he turns into a murderer to hide up the adultery. Great plan here. A man after God's own heart, yeah, not a choir boy, though, okay? Uh, and I love the fact that the Bible is so real with all of the heroes. We've got some great heroes here, but all of them have warts. 
All of them have got their faults and their shortcomings, and, and, and there's a realism there that I just love. It, it gives hope for people like you and me. Uh, it means, it means that we, we, can, we can qualify. And so David, this, this puny shepherd boy playing the harp, doesn't qualify, and he's a murderer and an adulterer. And yet, this is the one that God's going to use. And I share that for this reason. I'm absolutely certain in this auditorium, and certain among those listening in the podcast or whatever means, that there are some who are, who are Davids, in a David position right now. Where in your heart of hearts, you want to serve God. You've got, you've got a heart for God. Um, and, and, and maybe there's a call in your life. In fact, I'm sure there's a call in your life because everyone's got a call in their life. There's a ministry you're supposed to have. It may be being a pastor, it may be being a janitor, maybe uh, helping out the youth or the children, maybe heading up a house church. Whatever your role is, there's a, a ministry call there. And God wants to make a hero out of you in the kingdom like he made a hero out of David. But the question is this. Do you have voices in your head that are telling you otherwise? Um, is there a voice that's saying... Yeah, you've got a heart for God, but you're also nothing but a puny, heart-playing shepherd boy. You don't have any qualifications. You're not a Mr. Slick. Don't even think about it. Or maybe you've got a voice in your head that says, yeah, you've got a heart for God, but let's never forget. There's always a voice that says, let's never forget that affair that you had. Let's never forget that abortion that you had. Let's never forget that you blew apart a family. Let's never forget that you never pray enough. You can't, you can't step up and play in the game. What a hypocrite. And if you're one of those who are like David, and you've got those voices in your head that are saying you don't qualify or you're too sinful, I want you to right now in Jesus' name tell that voice to shut up. Just tell it to shut up. Shut your trap. It's a lie. It's a lie. Because David is proof that God doesn't look for a Mr. or Mrs. Slick. And God doesn't look for a Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. Thank God, because there aren't any. What God looks for is a person who's got his heart. Uh, I, I have a heart to be faithful for God. God's saying, will you weep with those who weep? Will you cry with those that I cry for? Will you care for those that I, I want to care for? Serve those that I call you to serve for? Love those that I love and forgive those that I forgive? And if the answer is yes, you qualify. No if ands, or buts. I'm thinking, I'm thinking that if... If God can make if God can make a hero out of a puny heart playing shepherd boy who, who committed adultery and murdered, well then he can probably do something with your life in the kingdom too. Praise God! Because at the end of the day, folks, it's not about how great you are or how great I am. It's about how great God is for using people like you and me. Amen. Amen. He chooses the weak things in the world. He chooses the foolish things in the world. To accomplish his will. There's nothing more weak or foolish than the cross. And so if, you, if, if you're weak and foolish, you qualify. <laughs> Welcome to the weak and foolish kingdom. Praise God. Praise God. One more thing I want to say about David. and applies both to David and Solomon. Under their reign, while they were kings, th- th- these were the glory days of, uh, of Israel. Israel had more uh, power and prestige and wealth and freedom under David and Solomon that they had at any other period in their life, in, in its history. Uh, and David was the first one who was called an anointed king, anointed. We get the word Christ from the word anointed. Um, G- when we say Jesus Christ, we're not giving Jesus a second name, as though it could have been Jesus Boyd or Jesus, you know, Knudsen or whatever. No, it, Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed or Messiah. He's, he's the Messiah. And so David becomes a type of Christ. He becomes the model of the, of the coming one uh, that was to liberate Israel and ultimately redeem the world. He's the, an embodied prophecy, if you will. And so we find this refrain, one of the streams that you see 
going uh, throughout the Old Testament, starting around this time, is that there'll come a future son of David, one like David, a Davidic king. And we're going to see that the way Jesus fulfills that prophecy is very, very different than the way anyone expected it to be fulfilled. And it cuts to the core of this question, why is the Old Covenant in certain respects so radically different from the New Covenant? We'll get to it in a minute. After Solomon and the glory days of Israel, things start to go downhill rather quickly. Solomon has two sons, and they get into a fight over who's going to uh, be heir to the throne. And the result is that there's a civil war, and the kingdom of Israel splits in two. 931 8 BC, this happened. And so there's a northern kingdom, which uh, contains 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it came to be called just Israel. And the southern kingdom consisted of the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, and it was just called Judah. Split into two kingdoms. And both of them, because they're split, are now weaker because of that. Not only that, but all 20 of the kings, following kings in the northern kingdom, end up being bad kings. They're not faithful to Yahweh. They, they get involved in idolatry and chase after false gods. All 20 over the next 200 years. And uh, of the 22 kings in the southern kingdom during this time, uh, most of them are bad kings. Most of them are unfaithful. You have a few that stand out as being good, but the exception proves the rule. There's a few reformations and they're good, but and they temporarily halt the downward slide. But on the whole, the thing is going downward. And what we're seeing is the Lord's warning coming true. Uh, the kings are corrupt, and so the people are corrupt. And so things are heading on a downward spiral. This is where God raises up all these prophets that we read about in the Old, Old Testament. There's Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Hosea, you know, Joel, Amos. All these prophets are speaking to the people. Most of them to the northern kingdom, but some to the southern kingdom as well. And in various ways, what they're saying, they're calling people back to the original covenant. The original covenant that God made way back in Deuteronomy was, if you'll be faithful to me, I'll protect you. And you'll be blessed, but if you're not faithful then I lift my protection and other nations will have their way with you and those other nations are nasty. And that's the judgment of God. He just stops holding them at bay. And as the kings are corrupt, the people are corrupt. The repentance they go through is temporary. And so there comes a time where the warning of God, God says if you're going to put your trust in earthly kings, put your trust in earthly government, put your trust in the power of the sword, if that's what you're going to trust, it's going to only get worse over the long run and eventually it will collapse. And so it does. The northern kingdom falls to this vicious nation named Assyria in uh, 732. And those 12, 10 tribes, they eventually just disappear from the face of the earth. They get assimilated into the culture. The southern kingdom falls in 586 to Babylon. But Benjamin and Judah are able to preserve their distinctness, which is why the Jewish people still exist to this day. But see, we need to see that the covenant that looked like it was so promising to deliver blessing. What a, what a, what a, you know, we're so special because we get to be blessed. Because if we only we obey this covenant. The thing is, is, they couldn't obey it. And it turned out to be a curse. And then over the next 600 years, up to the time of Christ, the Jews are continually under the tyranny and the oppression of pagan rulers. After Babylon, it's Persia. After Persia, it's the Greeks. After the Greeks, it's the Romans. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, there's been almost 600 years of oppression. 
This is the exile that we sing about around Christmas time. Israel being in exile and, and being lost. It's been a thousand years since the glory days. And life under Roman rule was very hard. They were brutal and unjust. They, 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 they invented, they didn't invent, but they practiced uh, order and peace by terror. They terrorized people into uh, not, not making waves. And so people were longing for this Davidic Messiah like, like, like never before. It was at a fever pitch. When will the Lord's Messiah, the Christ, come? The anointed one. They saw Jesus' miracles and they saw his authority and some began to say, maybe he's it. Maybe he's it. And so they began to call him the son of David, the Davidic Messiah. And they think that that he's going to liberate Israel and take Israel back to the glory days of prestige and wealth and freedom. But of course, Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He does, in fact, the opposite. They, They want a king. David's supposed to be a king, an earthly king. But when they approach Jesus, well, look what happens. In John 6, it says, the people came, or Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force. You're going to be our king, doggone it. We, we want those miracles working on our behalf. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself because he saw the world does not need another earthly king. He didn't come to fulfill some political office. Uh, he didn't want any role with that. He was about something different. They wanted a, a, a political ruler. That's what a David, Davidic Messiah was supposed to be. A political ruler who would solve their political problems and, and resolve their political questions. So they're always trying to lure him into uh, their debates. You know, should we pay taxes to Rome or whatever? And Jesus always finds a way, a wise way to outmaneuver them and turn those questions back on the people and turn them into kingdom of God questions. He didn't come to answer our political uh, questions or our political problems. Everybody wants the land restored to Israel, the promised land. It's supposed to be ours. But Jesus never even mentions the promised land. He's clearly not concerned about that. They want a Messiah who will support their nationalism, the favored status of Israel. But Jesus downplays the significance of Israel. In fact, sometimes he moves in the opposite direction. And and, and he starts complimenting the non-Israelites as having greater faith than the Israelites. says to a Roman centurion, the, the leader of the enemy, all right? That he says, never have I seen such great faith in all of Israel. This is ticking the people off. This is not what a Davidic Messiah is supposed to do. Uh, the Messiah was supposed to uphold the law and, and get people to comply with the law. That's how you get the blessing. But Jesus comes and, well, he offends. He, he offends the keepers of the law. Uh, he hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. This isn't what a good uh, law-abiding Messiah does. And he plays kind of fast and loose with some of the meticulous rules of the Sabbath and and whatever. He puts loving people above uh, the external obedience to rules. Sometimes he even dares to replace some of the law with his own teaching. He says, you've heard it said unto you, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. This eye for eye thing is commanded three times in the Old Testament. And it really is the foundation for all of the violent justice of the Old Testament. They get even uh, fairness justice of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, "That is, you've heard that, but now I'm saying to you, uh, love your enemies. Which goes right into the last point, and that is that they were all looking, they are all hoping for a Messiah who would crush their enemies. Defeat their enemies and liberate Israel. But Jesus says, no, you love those enemies. You turn the other cheek, never retaliate, never turn evil with evil. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink, Paul says. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. In fact, Jesus ends up getting crucified, voluntarily gets crucified by those enemies, out of love for those enemies. That's not what a Messiah is supposed to do. That doesn't look like David. What kind of a Messiah is this? They want a guy who will take him back to the glory days, but Jesus isn't interested in the glory days of the past. 
He's looking for a glory day in the future. Praise God. And, and, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If you're trying to put it into your little slots of earthly rulers and governments and, and, and militaries, it's not going to fit. Its kingdom is not of this world. So what's going on here, folks? What's going on is this. The way in which Jesus' life and teaching radically contrasts with the expectations of the people and with so much of what we see going on in the Old Testament, it takes us to the core of his, of his, of, of his mission and the core of what he means by the kingdom of God. Jesus is revealing here that the kingdom of God that he came to inaugurate is about raising up a people who are going to manifest God's original ideal for creation. God's original ideal for human beings. Because all earthly rulers, all earthly governments, all competing nations, and the governments of those nations, and all sword yielding is a sign of rebellion. It's only there because human beings have rejected God. And the kingdom is about rising up a people who no longer reject God. And therefore, a people who no longer are putting their trust in earthly kings, earthly governments, in distinct nations, or the use of violence. They manifest God's heart, praise God, that self-sacrificial character of God that's revealed on, on Calvary. So God's raising up a people. This is the kingdom of God. Where God reigns, you don't look to a, a human ruler to reign. God alone is their king. And where God reigns, you don't find significance and security in any particular nation that you happen to belong to. Because the kingdom of God encompasses all the nations. And where God reigns, people don't put their trust in, in violence. They trust uh, the power of the cross to transform the world. It's a radically different looking kind of a kingdom. And, and what Jesus is showing us here, folks, is this. The reason why God accommodated that trust in earthly kings and accommodated, stooped to work within uh, those governments and the different nations and the use of violence, he did that not to reveal what his will was, but to reveal what his will wasn't. In order that he could eventually reveal what his real will was. He, he's, he's trying to show people that if your trust this is what he said to them when they first demanded a king. If your trust is in the earthly fallen king and, and your fallen nation and your fallen military, it, you can't be rightly related with God that way. You can't be rightly right related with other, other people that way. It's going to end up backfiring on you. It will never in the long run work. And so when Jesus shows up and they've had 600 years of this oppression, he's basically saying this. Hey, that covenant with, with your trust in the earthly king and, 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 and your favored nation status and, and, and the use of the sword, how's that working for you these days? Huh? Are you getting the blessing that you're hoping to get? And the answer, of course, is no, we're not. And so what Jesus is essentially doing is saying, are you ready for something totally different then? Are you ready for a kingdom that looks something totally different from that? This is what Paul is getting at with the law. You know, Paul says, in the Old Testament, most of the folks thought that the way to get rightly related with God is to meticulously obey the law. But of course, if they could do that, they'd get a blessing and God would protect them. But the trouble is they couldn't do that. They, they couldn't live up to it. And Paul then, as he's looking at this through the lens of the cross, he's looking at that stream of the law back there. What he now sees, you read about this in Romans and in Galatians, is that it's not a coincidence that the law failed. And the, the cross wasn't God's plan B. Like his first option was the law. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, now I got to come up with a new design. No. Paul sees that the failure of the covenant was the, uh, of the law was at least one of the purposes of the law. It serves other purposes as well, but one foundational purpose was it's not there to make us righteous. It's to show us that we can't make ourselves righteous. Because only when we see that we can't make ourselves righteous are we going to be in a position to say, wow, do we need a savior? <laughs> Either God's going to save us by his grace or we're goners. 
you got to come to the end of yourself before you can come into the kingdom. And, and if, you, if your trust is in the law, it's going to end up failing. So also, the law and the nation and the earthly king and the violets are all wrapped up with each other. The reason why God accommodated that stuff was not to show us what his ideal will is, it's to show us what his will isn't so that we can finally accept it when he tells us what his real will is. Uh, he's saying he accommodated that to show us that if our trust is in the earthly king or in the earthly nation or in the use of violence, it will always let us down. It may look good in the short run, but it will always backfire on you. You can't be rightly related to God and rightly related to other people if your trust is in the earthly king, nations, and violence. And he's doing all of that to prepare the way for us to receive the true kingdom. What God knows is this, that we will never be able to put our full trust in him as king so long as we hold out any hope in human kings. We've got to see the futility of trusting in earthly kings if we're going to fully uh, pledge all of our allegiance to God alone as king. And we've got to see the futility and even the stupidity from God's perspective of putting trust in any particular nations. See the, the futility of these competing nations fighting one another in order to come to the end of ourselves and say, we need a kingdom that embraces all the different nations. And we need to come to the point of seeing the futility and the stupidity of the cyclical violence that's characterized human history if we're ever going to really embrace Jesus' call to live nonviolently. I, I, I came to, I've come to the conclusion that until, this is where I came to, when you see the, 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 the waste of life, the ridiculous, mindless, senseless, diabolical, demonic waste of life, in this tit-for-tat game that human beings have been playing since Cain, really, goes back that far, where I kill five of yours, you kill 50 of mine, I kill 500 of yours, you kill 5,000 of mine, and it goes on and on and on, uh, until someone finally gets annihilated. This, the, thinking that, that retaliation can work, thinking that if we only kill enough of the bad guys, well, this time is different. This time will really solve the world's problems. Not seeing that that only delays and ensures that there'll be subsequent violence later on. And it's only when a person sees the, the, the mindlessness of that and gets so disgusted with the violence of this world that you say, I'd rather die than participate in that. Now you're ready for the kingdom. Now you're ready for the kingdom. I'd rather die. Because you might die. But anyone who's telling you the gospel demands anything less is lying to you. We're supposed to die. You die to yourself and that's how you find true life in Jesus Christ. And so God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can embrace the true kingdom. Folks, this is a message that is so important today. What, what I see happening, my eyes have opened this about seven, eight years ago, and what I see happening is, is, is this. Especially in America, it applies to other places too, but in America, we, we, we like the grace. Oh, we like the grace part of the new covenant and being free from the law. That will take. But there's a lot of folks who, all the other areas where, G, where the kingdom supersedes what was before, uh, they, they, they like that stuff back there. Uh, they like the, you have heard, not Jesus saying, but I say unto you. <laughs> and so we just jump over Jesus and grab it. There's, there's folks around who, who uh, yeah, they like the grace of the new covenant, but they also want to still believe that God wants us to trust in our favored nation. He's still playing that nationalistic game. And, and he wants us to uh, still trust in our favored king or our favored president or our favored political candidate as opposed to those ungodly ones out there. And, and, and we're still supposed to believe that, that God wants us to favor our, our, our sanctified use of violence as opposed to the use of violence in other countries. No, God's on our side, you see. And so he's still playing this nationalistic, earthly king, military kind of a game. And they'll jump right over Jesus and appeal to the Old Testament to prove their point. 
Folks, it's unfaithful to ever jump over Jesus and grab onto something when Jesus, his call in the kingdom is the opposite of it. Um, it compromises the beauty of the kingdom. It compromises the beauty of Jesus Christ. It compromises the radical uniqueness of what Jesus came and gave us. It compromises the beauty of God's original plan for humanity, which we're supposed to be manifesting to the world. We're the mustard seed that's supposed to manifest it to the world. But how do you manifest it? When you've absorbed so much of the world, you don't look at different at all. Explains why the church in America, to a large degree, doesn't look like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness with his last breath. The kingdom always looks like that, but the church to a large degree doesn't look like that. In fact, the church to a large degree, let's be honest, it looks like just a religious version of America. Only it's got a Christian label slapped on it. It absorbs the, all the values of the culture, the, the, the values of the earthly kings and the earthly politics and the values of the earthly government and the values of our favored nation status, our exceptionalism, and, 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 and the status of our military. It embraces all of that and it just says, oh, by the way, it's Christian too. So we've got our Christian politicians, our Christian nation, our Christian violence, folks. Just like Israel wanted to be like all the other nations, so many in the church today want to be just like all the other Americans, or just like every, everyone else out there, except that we got a little special edition thing called Jesus. Uh, folks, the truth is, and the Lord help us to wake up to this, there ain't no Christian candidate, no distinctly Christian candidate, no distinctly Christian government, no distinctly Christian nation, no distinctly Christian military. There's only Jesus Christ, and there's only his kingdom. Praise God. It's, Amen. See, he came, all of that, trust in the earthly king, trust in the nation, trust in the violence, is predicated on human rebellion, and he came to set us free from the rebellion, so he came to set us free from trusting in that. And only when we're free from trusting in that can we trust in him to be king alone. And can we trust in his kingdom to win the day? And can we trust in the power of the cross rather than violence is what's going to, in the end, win the world. How we need to wake up to this and, and, and see the futility and the stupidity of trusting in fallen human beings to solve the problems. It's like we were saying earlier, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame. I don't care how good it looks, how slick it looks, how, how impressive it looks. We dare not trust it. We trust only in Jesus' name. The only thing, the only thing that's going to win is Jesus. Amen. So folks... For us to know how God wants us to live, you, you learn so much. We've got to study the Old Testament. You can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. And the character of the Old Testament, there's so much to learn from Moses and Abraham and, and so much there to learn. But when it comes to looking at the nationalism and the earthly kings and the violence of the Old Covenant, that's stuff that Jesus explicitly negated. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And our job is to listen to the but I say unto you, not go back to the you you have heard. And, and it's unfaithful to do otherwise. We're to get our marching orders from Jesus Christ. You want to know what God looks like? Keep your eyes fixed on the cross. You want to know what God wants you to look like? Keep your eyes fixed on the cross. You want to know what the kingdom looks like? Keep your eyes fixed on the cross. You know what's going to win the day? Keep your eyes fixed on the cross. Everything else is going to disappear. If the nation of Israel illustrates anything, it illustrates that. So I end with this question. And, and Lord helps to be honest on this. But who do you trust? What do you trust? Really? Is all your, are all your eggs in this basket? Have you, have you woken up to the futility and the stupidity of all that's going around? Uh, the, na- the, the competing nations, the competing governments, uh, the, the, the slick willies out there, the, the souls out there, and the violence. Have you come to see the futility of that so that you can divest yourself of all hope in that? Because only to the degree that you do that can you trust in God alone to be your king and the cross power to win the day. Um, do you trust the voices in your head or do you trust what God says about you? 
God says, you're a hero. Step into the game. Do you trust that or do you trust the voice of mom and dad or, or whoever installed it that says you're just a stupid, scrawny, heart-playing shepherd boy who committed adultery and murdered you out of the game? Who are you going to trust? And who are you going to trust? And one way to, one way, one way to find this out is to ask this question. What happens to you when someone challenges or threatens your opinion about your favorite candidate or your favorite nation or your favorite military? If you find that you get angry or nervous or anxious, well, there's some clutching going on there. If you really had all your trust in, in, in Christ, um, it, it, it wouldn't be bothering you. It's like, well, whatever, you know. All the nonsense that's going now in the White House, you know, as you're listening to the venom and the, everyone calling each other demons and all that stuff. What does it do to you? It can easily pull you in. Those stupid Republicans, those evil Democrats. You get sucked into that. And if, see, if you're finding those pushing your buzzers, I want to encourage you to investigate the very real possibility that you have some, you have some, you, you, got, you got a dog in that race. How do they say it down south? You got a horse in that race, or I don't know, some roosters to crow, or something, putting a cart before the horse, some bull in a china shop. I don't know what I'm saying. I've lost it. But you, all, all, all of our allegiance, all of our trust is in one person, Jesus Christ. And, and everything else is just part of the world that's, that's fading away. We, our job is to be the billboard for that kingdom. All right? And that means we've got to keep it holy, keep it distinct, keep it radical, keep it beautiful. And now we have something to offer the world that the world doesn't already have. They don't want another religious version of what's already out there. People are hungry for something different. And that's because God put that hunger in them because there is a real difference. There's a different kingdom that's going to win the day. Praise God. All right, all right. I'm going to close in prayer. And um, yes, amen. Praise God. Yes. God's good. God's good. He's good. He's good. God's beautiful. Gorgeous. It's magnificent. It's open our eyes. Huh. Open our eyes, Lord. Um, uh, if you have any need here whatsoever that could use prayer, maybe it has to do with this message, maybe it has to do with uh, something totally unrelated, it doesn't matter. I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. That's what they're here for. We want to be a church that prays for, for each other. Um, and so uh, let me close in this prayer. Would you stand? As I just say, as we leave this place, can we do all this? Go out of here with a commitment to ask God to open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes to see the futility and stupidity of, of the structures of this world, the dividing, warring nations, the sword wielding, the slick, the slick, Mr. and Mrs. Slicks out there, Lord God, help us to see through all that, the disgusting, mindless, cyclical nature of violence, that we may divest ourselves of all hope in that, so that we may totally invest ourselves in hope in you. Our hope is founded in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, let that be true that we may be your people who put on display the unique kingdom, the different kingdom, the Jesus-looking kingdom. I trust a totally different kind of power. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's kingdom people said one last time. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I love you guys. Go and love on the world. Amen.